Dr. David Healy is both a critic and a practitioner of psychopharmacology, and today he's going to share with us what he actually does in practice. Welcome to the Carlat Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief, and my co-host Kelly Newsom is away on vacation this week. David Healy is a psychopharmacologist whose career spans back to the early 1980s, where his early research furthered our understanding of the monoamine system and the norepinephrine and serotonergic antidepressants that work through it. In the 1990s, Dr. Healy realized that many of the pioneers of psychopharmacology would not be with us long, and he collected interviews with them, which he turned into a series of key textbooks on the history of psychopharmacology. I highly recommend them if you haven't read them already. Since then, Dr. Healy has written critical texts exploring the broader effects of psychiatric meds and diagnoses on our culture, all the while continuing to practice. He spoke with us about some of his views on the field and shared a rare glimpse of how he works with patients. But first, a preview of the CME quiz for this episode. Which effect of SSRIs was not well known when they were first released? A. Anxiolytic or anti-anxiety effects. B. Antidepressant effects. C. Sexual dysfunction. Or D. Metabolic effects. In psychiatry, randomized controlled trials are thought of as the gold standard for figuring out what medications do. But do we miss anything by relying too much on randomized controlled trials? Well, uh, the guy who did the first randomized controlled trial, Austin Bradford Hill, said, you know, in essence, what he was saying was, you to play golf, you need to have a full set of clubs in the back. You don't just want one good club, which you love using. And RCTs are a bit like that. They're useful to evaluate one obscure effect drug. When you're not sure if it really works or not, that's when it can be helpful to tee up an RCT to look at one thing. But while you're teeing up the RCT to look at one thing, you miss all of the other things that the drug may be doing. In the case of the SSRI group of drugs, they were fairly weak antidepressants. In fact, they're not really antidepressants, they're more anxiolytic. But the companies back in the late 80s figured there's no way to try and bring an anxiolytic on the market, at least in places like the UK and Europe, where uh, the benzodiazepines had got a really bad name. Uh, people were being hooked to them. And the average family doctor, who was one who was giving out these drugs, wasn't going to buy the idea that this is a, an anxiolytic that people can't get dependent to. So the whole idea of having an anxiolytic brought on the market and, and back then, most people viewed the problems they were having not as a mood problem, but as stress, nervousness, anxiety. But it seemed from a marketing point of view, it seemed a better idea to bring them on the market as antidepressants. But what you're doing when you bring them on the market as antidepressants is you're setting up an odd kind of situation, which is they're not awfully good antidepressants. And it's hard work to try and tease out, do they actually work at all in clinical trials. It can often take a full six weeks before there's a clear differentiation 
between the drug and placebo. I'm going to differ with you a bit there. I mean, the SSRIs are also not very effective in anxiety disorders either. But I'll agree with you that they do work well for anxiety in patients with neurotic traits, you know, people who have difficulty managing stress and tend to react with intense emotions like anxiety. But Dr. Healy, you've also written that besides these anxiolytic effects, that the most reliable effect of SSRIs might be to lower sex drive. We all assume the mood effect is the commonest thing the drug does. But in fact, no, there's things that are probably a lot more important to the people we put on these drugs. Sexual dysfunction didn't show up in these drugs, or did rarely. The extent to which it was happening didn't show up at all. So FDA say there's a positive benefit-risk ratio, which is just nuts. It's really only you and me that can decide in the case of people that we're treating. You know, the person you treat and you combined are the people who work out whether, in this case, there's a positive risk-benefit ratio. Can you put all this in practical terms? How does it affect what you do with the patient? What is it that will be a helpful thing to do that might lift the mood? Instead of thinking about it, we just figure, let's give an antidepressant. And if the first one doesn't work, we give another and another. Any, I mean, and on the basis that apparently they all work, so there can't be any problem giving, giving you 10 drugs that work. Whereas the other way of thinking was, well, okay, this particular drug that gets labeled an antidepressant, which is really more an anxiolytic, hasn't worked in your case. And rather than adding drugs into the mix, maybe we should halt that one and begin a different kind of drug. At the end of the day, you know, the best evidence we have comes from the patient's mouth. And part of the problem we've got is in clinical settings because of time constraints and things like that. And, you know, the bias you and I might have in that we don't want to think we've harmed people. We actually make it very hard for people to speak up and say, well, look, you know, there is also this other odd thing that's actually been happening to me. So we've moved from a culture of do no harm to see no harm. Yeah, we've moved from a culture where we figured, well, we knew that we were giving them poison out of which we hope to bring good to giving sacraments, which are things that can only do good. Even we've gone beyond you know, the Catholic Church who recognizes that the Eucharist can cause problems and have made it gluten-free, but now the pills we have can't cause problems. I mean, there are clearly some doctors who can recognize that the pills are causing problems, but most of them don't. And part of the problem here for me in all this is that if you don't think the pills are, can cause problems, it becomes a heart sink job. The people who are not responding or things aren't going right or, you know, you're feeling stressed and burdened when they turn up and you see the clinic list and you say, oh, yeah, there's going to be three or four awkward people here. If you turn it the other way around and figure that the people who can tell us most about these pills are the people that we put on them. Well, all of a sudden we have a job where we have a hundred free research assistants. If you encourage them to Google things and come back and talk about issues. Doctors are not the only ones who are driving this. We have, especially in the U.S., a consumer medicine culture, and it's often the patients who are asking for more medication. We've moved into a health universe. Why 
the patient wants more drugs is a little bit like why, you know, the Catholic rather than going to mass just once a week goes daily and wants the Eucharist daily. Health has replaced holiness. And, you know, we think that the more sacraments we get, the better. And I'm entitled to get to heaven. And you're saying no to me. It's a bit like a priest saying, hey, you know, you don't really want to be coming along to church quite this often. It's not that healthy. As you talk, I think about many of the things that SSRIs do, which many of us didn't believe they did when these medicines first came out. Things like they lower sex drive, they can cause a withdrawal syndrome, and rarely there are cases of suicidal ideation on them. And it was your work that helped bring attention to a lot of these problems. And lately you've been writing about persistent sexual dysfunction after stopping SSRIs something that is recognized by the European regulators, but not by the FDA. Dr. Healy, are there any other examples of rare side effects you've seen on these medications? The case that I always come back to when I make this point is a lady I had who um, was put on Paxil because she got anxious. She choked on some food at her father's funeral, became anxious and found it hard to eat again, was put on Paxil, which cleared the problem up beautifully. And also she was a nervous driver and Paxil cleared that up too. And she was feeling great. This pill is working wonderfully well for me. A few months later, about half a year later, she gets told by her friend, you know, you were drinking very heavily last night and behaving oddly. And uh, this, when she gets told it a few times, she begins to wonder. And when she um, has a crash in a car, she you know, begins to wonder as well. And goes back to the doctor and says, look, you know, I think this Axel is causing me to drink. And he laughs at her, but is a little more gentle than most of us and writes to the company and says, could this happen? And they write back, of course, and say, no, it couldn't. We've got no reports of this. But he does agree to change her. And she knows so little about these pills. She's got no background in healthcare. She's left school early. And he's changed her from one SSRI to another and she doesn't know that's what she's done. She just knows he's changed the pills and the problem keeps going. He refers her to AA and she says at AA, look, I think my pills are causing me to drink. And AA tell her, this just proves you're an alcoholic. This is typical alcoholic thinking. Okay. And she ultimately loses her job and things like that. And uh, she goes on the internet and begins to research these things. And I've got a PhD in the serotonin system. She ends up telling me things about the serotonin system that I didn't know and comes up with an answer. Change me to mirtazapine, which is what the doctor does, and the problem clears up. The only people around the place at that time when all this happened about 10 years ago or so that agreed with her that SSRIs can make you alcoholic. I mean, they're useful. I mean, we were using, we all thought they can be helpful for people who are depressed, who drink because they're depressed. And that may be true for some people that we treat, but there's clearly a group of people who become alcoholic on them. And I've got hundreds of reports of this now, but the people who agreed with her were the pharmaceutical companies who are working on 5-HT3 antagonists as potential treatments for alcoholism. Are psychiatrists more likely to see these rare reactions because they get referred to us? 
Good question. Yeah, they're going to send it to us expecting us to add more diagnoses and they're not going to recognize it as an adverse event and the chances are we're not going to recognize it either. We have a problem, which is if we tell the PCP this is an adverse event on the drug, lots of PCPs aren't going to be terribly happy with this message and nor is the patient, which is I did something wrong and we now have an expert saying I did something wrong. Am I in legal trouble? How do you know if a drug is causing a rare side effect? You know, it's very hard to see. Yeah, this drug could be causing that problem. But in a sense, that's where the fun in the job comes from. Uh, You know, and then maybe ending up saying, there's a bunch of patients I've seen recently where it has been the drug. You've got people who have raw and painful mouths. you know, how does that happen on a psychotropic drug? And to me, it really wasn't obvious, but it turns out when we look at the drugs the person has been put on, there's things like lamotrigine or topiramate or whatever, which are linked potentially to this kind of thing. Okay, so walk us through the steps. When we see something in practice that might be a rare side effect to a drug, What do we do to evaluate that? One of the key things is going to be, if it's possible, and it's always possible with a person who's on six or eight drugs, to stop one of them. Like, for instance, I inherited two, and they were both been treated for bipolar disorder, and they had a shake. And they were on standard treatment, lithium and lamotrigine and one or two other drugs. And the obvious thing was to say, well, it's probably a tremor caused by lithium. So let's stop the lithium. In both cases, the tremor went on. So this opened up the question. I was looking at two patients on lamotrigine. So you got two people who had tremors on it, which I thought were likely to be caused by lithium, which you'd have thought was the obvious thing, but weren't. If you go to reports to FDA and look at lamotrigine and what are the problems people have reported to FDA on it, you find tremor is there as very frequently reported. So the next step then is to stop lamotrigine and see what happens. And when the tremor clears up, in both cases, the answer has to be it's the lamotrigine causing it. Does it help to search the medical journals on PubMed? No, I don't know that PubMed's going to get you anywhere. No, it has to be an adverse event reporting system. And MedWatch is useful, but I, I just happened in that case to use it. But you don't need to do that. If you're left with, you know, the person's only on two or three drugs, you've got rid of the one that's most likely to cause a tremor and that didn't clear the problem up. The next thing is to remove the other one and see what happens. Why did you say that PubMed is not helpful in these cases? Journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, the BMJ, used to operate with case reports up till the earlier mid-1990s. Industry did a good job on selling them evidence-based medicine, which is you really only want to be publishing RCTs, which we're also going to be paying you for reprints of, where we're not going to be buying reprints of case reports of problems on our drugs. You said the pharmaceutical companies have gotten around this mandatory reporting. How did they do that? They've outsourced the drugs to other companies. Like, for instance, 
Joe Lofton, uh, the case of Pfizer, if you now try and report a person becoming suicidal on the drug, you know, to Pfizer, they say, well, uh, we aren't the company that holds it anymore. Dr. Healy, you are known as a critic of psychopharmacology, but you're also a practicing psychopharmacologist. A psychopharmacologist who figures that part of the skill is knowing when not to use a drug. And I, you know, I agree. I think your work is sometimes misunderstood as being anti-psych meds, but in reality, you seem to be saying that something a lot of us agree on, which is that many of our psych meds are not strong enough. They have effect sizes in the small range, like 0.2 or 0.3, which is barely noticeable to the naked eye. I mean that about the SSRIs and also about one of our latest drugs, cariprazine, Vralar, which just got FDA approved for antidepressant augmentation. But in the latest trial of that, the effect size was only 0.22. Well, there's two things here. First of all, generally speaking across the board, the drugs that we brought on the market during the 1950s and early 60s without RCTs are more potent than the ones we've brought on since. Because if you're giving them as doctors, you had to see the benefit. Whereas with an SSRI, you can produce a statistical benefit that no one can see. So what are some of the more powerful medications that you rely on in your practice? In terms of treating a person who's got melancholia, I would always reach for a tricyclic antidepressant. You know, they're the only drugs that have been shown. I mean, I've seen in clinical practice people respond to them, okay, in a way you don't see with SSRIs. And the trials that have been done show that they're more potent than SSRIs. Melancholic depression is characterized by mood that is distinct from ordinary sadness. Emotions are flat and hedonic, and they don't respond to external events much, although they might be worse in the morning. These patients also tend to wake up early in the morning. They have low appetite and pronounced psychomotor changes like slowing or agitation. And what about in bipolar disorder? Figure lithium can be very helpful for a lot of people. I'm much less persuaded by the anticonvulsants generally. In schizophrenia? Well, in terms of the antipsychotic group of drugs, I'm probably more likely to use the first generation rather than you know, the second generation. Haloperidol, if need be, but not particularly. Maybe perfenazine. The group of drugs that we had in Europe, which haven't really got over here, like Amy Sulpride. Thank you, Dr. Healy. And where can people go to learn more? If people want to chase this a bit further, yeah. a book which is called The Shipwreck of the Singular, which does have all my concerns, particularly the concern that doctors are going to go out of business if they don't wake up and realize the value is in the interactions between their patients and them. David Healy is a professor of psychiatry at Bangor University in the UK. He is a former secretary of the British Association for Psychopharmacology, and he has authored more than 220 peer-reviewed articles and 25 books, including The Antidepressant Era, 
The Psychopharmacologists, and his latest, Shipwreck of the Singular, which documents how the very improvements in medicine, which increased our life expectancy, have now turned the other way on us and are leading to shortened lifespans. Earn your CME credits through the link in the show notes and learn more by subscribing to the full journal online with $30 off with the promo code PODCAST. The Carlat Report is one of few CME publications that depends entirely on subscribers. Thank you for helping us stay free of commercial support.